You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Today we'll be reading from Daniel 2, 1-24. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me the gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. 
Well, again, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. I'm sure many of you are already in the full swing of things when it comes to Christmas, but uh, our family, we always wait until after my youngest son's birthday, which is at the end of November, and so that's kind of our cutoff point. We, we do the birthday party thing, and then we start setting up our Christmas decorations, and so we're planning on doing that this evening. And speaking of Elliot's birthday, he wanted an animal-themed party, and so we hired a local pet store to bring some real animals to the house, which was pretty neat. And uh, it was pretty cool, actually. And, and when the time came for all the animals to arrive for the party, we, we asked all the kids to sit down on the couch. And of, and, of course, some were feeling pretty nervous about seeing snakes and lizards or worried about being bit or scratched by one of the animals. But uh, my wife, Audrey, and I, we, we just kept reassuring them that it would be safe. You know, we're, we're telling them there's nothing to be afraid of. The, the, the lady from the pet store, she knows what she's doing, and she'll be there with us, and, and she'll be... She'll, She'll, she'll guide you along. There's nothing to worry about, nothing to be afraid of, right? Here's the problem, though. Audrey is extremely afraid of birds. My wife, Audrey, she's extremely afraid of birds. She has a phobia of them. When we go to the zoo, she doesn't even go in the bird cages or anything like that, right? She doesn't even want to see them. And um, guess what? The first thing the lady from the pet store did as she came through the door was to ask Audrey to hold her bird, this parrot that she had, and, so that she could go back to her car and get more animals. So, so of course, Audrey's like, okay, and then all of a sudden she has this bird in her hand, and honestly, this was my favorite moment of the year. I, I couldn't stop laughing. I have a couple pictures to show you. They're there. See, she's holding the bird, and then, and then it at first it's on her finger, and then it actually jumped up to her shoulder. And uh, so you have to understand that, that Audrey wanted to scream in horror there, especially as it jumped on her shoulder and, and started to nip at her shirt. Th- this was definitely guaranteed her, her least favorite moment of the year. But again, sitting on the couch a mere 10 feet away from her were a bunch of excited and nervous kids whom we just assured and promised that there'd be nothing to be afraid of. So if Audrey, one of the only two adults in the room, showed fear or concern, it would have most likely caused all the kids to become nervous or afraid as well, therefore probably wrecking the whole experience and the highlight of Elliot's party before it even started. So in that tense and anxiety-filled moment, with all the kids watching, Audrey actually managed to keep her composure. She put on a brave face for the kids, so props to her, and the party ended up being a fun-filled hit, except the snake part. Some kids freaked out anyways, but that's, that's a snake. You can't do anything about the snakes, right? But in a podcast I was listening to a couple months ago, I learned that there's a name for this type of person who's able to keep their composure in a tense situation. It's a term that was coined by the late rabbi and family systems therapist Edwin Friedman, and it's called being a non-anxious presence. In the, in the realm of leadership circles, it might also be called a self-differentiated leader And by non-anxious presence, Edwin Friedman writes that it's someone who is less likely to become lost in the anxious, emotional process swirling about. I mean someone who can be separate while still remaining connected and therefore can maintain a modifying, non-anxious, and sometimes challenging presence. I mean someone who can manage his or her own reactivity in response to the automatic reactivity of others and therefore be able to take stands at the risk of displeasing. 
So in other words, in other words, this is someone who is able to rise above and resist giving into the effects and knee-jerk reactions of a culture or circumstance of anxiety, injustice, or toxicity. Not because they don't care, but rather because they do. They resist the systemic anxiety or fear in order to bring a clarifying perspective and an alternative model of renewal and hope into the system. Or to put it this way, to have someone around that manages to keep their cool in a tense situation, right? Those are the people we cling to and rely on and look to when everything's going crazy and everyone's freaking out and we wonder why, is, why isn't this person freaking out? They must know what, what's going on and what to do about it. For example, when, whenever I get asked to officiate a wedding, that's really what people are asking me to be is the non-anxious presence even though officiating weddings actually make me really nervous, inside I'm freaking out. I don't want to wreck the most important day of someone's life. But yet I learned over time that for my job to work and to help ease the jitters and anxiety of the bride and groom especially, I have to choose to refuse to get caught up in the emotion and anxiety of the day. I have to be the one person in the room that's not a hot mess in order to bring stability to the moment and to, and to make sure the wedding continues as planned. Another example of a non-anxious presence is the character of Christopher Robin in The Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. We watch Winnie the Pooh all the time because Elliot loves Winnie the Pooh, so we're always watching Winnie the Pooh. And I've noticed that Christopher Robin is, is this non-anxious presence because while all the characters eventually get themselves into a tizzy or a frighteningly confusing situation, Christopher Robin eventually shows up to bring clarity and peace to the moment. Silly old bear. Everything's fine. That's the non-anxious presence. And it's called being a presence because it's not even always about what the non-anxious person does. It's more about their attitude and their posture, their ability to remain resolute and steadfast. Just the presence of someone like that in a room can settle people down and bring change to a, a toxic and anxious environment. And in the passage from Daniel, which we just read this morning, we see Daniel take on this role as a non-anxious presence in the midst of an extremely tense and unjust moment of life and death. Daniel, somehow impervious to the systemic anxiety of the situation, as theologian Paul R. House writes, Daniel remains very cool under pressure, a trait that serves him well throughout his career. So it Let's look at the story and, 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 and let's see how, how he's able to remain cool. So the captain of the guard, Arioch, he finds Daniel, most likely still in training to be a wise man since this is only King Nebuchadnezzar's second year and Daniel's training was to take three years. And, and so Daniel's probably in his second year of training as well. So anyways, he finds Daniel and his friends and he finds them in order to put them to death according to the king's demands. They're to be torn limb from limb. But Daniel, of course, he wasn't in the courts, still in training, so he doesn't even know what's going on. So he has to ask. And then even when he finds out that the king's sentenced all his advisors and wise men to be put to death for not being able to proclaim and interpret his dream, for some reason, Daniel doesn't run, or he doesn't freak out, he doesn't fight back. He just asks a logical question. And he says, why is this so urgent? 
Why is the king so desperate to have his dream interpreted so quickly? That's, again, that's how he reacts to his life being threatened. He asks a question. I'd be like, but I wasn't there. I'm still in training. Please don't kill me, right? I'd be begging for my life. And this is basically what the Chaldeans were doing. When the king informed them that they'd be torn limb from limb if they couldn't tell him his dream, after, and, and then after them asking twice to just, you know, just tell us the dream, and I will tell you the interpretation. And the king's like, no, you have to be able to tell me the dream. So they beg him to reconsider, saying, this isn't fair. In verses 10 to 11, again, it says, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so they're kind of, there's kind of a side point here that we're going to talk about next time, I think. Um, they're saying no one can show it except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. So they're saying nobody knows except the supernatural, right? And so in a way, they're, they're right. Of course, their gods don't know it. And of course, they don't dwell with flesh because they're false idols and they're, they're fake. They're not real, right? But, but the reality is that God does know the dream and God does dwell with man. Especially in this Christmas time, we're talking about Jesus coming to us to be God with us, to dwell with us, right? We're talking about his, his Holy Spirit dwelling in us as temples, right? So God does dwell with us. So in a way, they're, they're right, but they're also wrong and Dan is going to prove that to them, that there is a God who knows and there is a God who reveals and does dwell with man. And so, and Daniel's going to, going to have that. And we're going to talk about that um, next time as we finish Daniel 2. But in other words, in, in this part of the story, they're saying to him, right, that, that they're saying to him, what, what you're asking us to do is impossibly unfair and unjust. They're saying no one has ever asked this before. Again, only the, only the gods know your dream. But it seems like King Nebuchadnezzar mistrusts these wise men. Probably they were in, he inherited them from his father's courts, right? So he's thinking that if he told them his dream, they'll probably just say whatever they need to say for their own benefit and maybe even to the detriment of the king. And he also seems to doubt if their, lobili- their abilities are even legit, which is fair. And this is why he tells them that unless they can both tell him his dream and interpret it, they're no use to him. Into the lion's den they'll go, or whatever it is they did in Babylon to tear them limb from limb. And this also shows that that this dream was important to the king. It really troubled him. It troubled his spirit, it said. But unlike them, Daniel doesn't even question the king's demands. He only wonders why it's so urgent, why he needs to know it right away. And so to that effect, he requests for more time and sets up a meeting with the king where he'll tell him his dream and also interpret it for him. That's his promise that he's making. And in volunteering to do this, first of all, Daniel's placing himself between the king and everyone else. Right? He's placing himself between the king and everyone else. He's taken the responsibility. And so he's able to save the lives, or at least delay the death penalty, of not only himself and his friends, but all the other wise men who haven't been put to death yet. Of course, this reminds us of Jesus who, who mediates between us and God, who sets himself between, between God, the judge, and us, the sinners. 
But anyways, it, it, back to Daniel's story, it's amazing because somehow he's able to set himself apart from the fear and horror of the situation. Again, if a captain of the army came to our door to kill us on direct orders from the prime minister, most of us would be freaking out. We'd be crying. We'd be like, no, please don't kill me, right? Or we try to fight back or we try to hide or, or whatever. But not Daniel. For some reason, somehow, he's able to set himself apart from the fear and anxiety he should be feeling. And in doing so, becomes this non-anxious presence in the midst of a tense and unjust situation. And then he's able to ask the right question to gain clarity. He makes a plan, and he chooses to act in the face of injustice. Like an antibody in a toxic system, he becomes an agent of clarity, hope, and renewal. And on that end, I, I strongly believe that as the body of Christ... We've been purposely positioned as exiles and called to be set apart from the world for this very purpose. To be a non-anxious presence in the midst of a world and culture of confusion, anxiety, and fear. Edwin Friedman, again, wrote that contemporary culture has become so chronically anxious that our society has gone into emotional regression. In other words, even as we Westerners place our hope and security in our economic systems and our governments and government programs and globalization and consuming goods and individualism, intellectualism and technological progress, ex expecting as a result to discover or find ourselves in some kind of utopia of peace, equality, happiness and easiness, the opposite seems to be happening. And yes, there are some good things happening for sure, but the stats show that in our society we're seeing an ever-increase of depression and mental health issues, reactive racist and extremist hate groups, outrage and cancel culture, divisive politics, rising inequality between rich and poor, loneliness and social disconnection, the looming concern of war, terrorism and shootings, bitterness, exhaustion, and of course anxiety, which leads to more crises, which creates more anxiety, and so on, and so on, and so on. So as we see our world spiral out of control, we're actually being given an opportunity to be even more set apart as a beacon of stability and hope. As the church, we should stand out from the crowd as that non-anxious presence. The world should be taking notice and wondering why we're not freaking out with the rest of them. As Mark Sayers writes, Live with a peaceful presence in an anxious system, and you will become a healing agent of renewal. Live with a peaceful presence in an anxious system, and you will become a healing agent of renewal. As a church, we should be a voice of clarity and truth in a world of confusion and relativism. 
a beacon of peace and forgiveness in a world of violence and bitterness, a people of faithfulness and steadfastness in a world of anxiety and fear, a light of hope in a world of hopelessness, an example of joy and satisfaction in a world that can't find happiness or wholeness, to be arbiters of justice in the wake of the injustices of the world, and a loving community in an age of isolation and individualism. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples something very curious. He told them that they were called to be the salt of the earth. Of course, the main uses for salt back then were for preservation and also for flavor. In other words, as Christians, we're meant to be preservers of holiness and truth while inviting the world to taste and see how wonderful it is. And in the same way, he also tells us where to be a city on a hill and lights in the world. To be a shining remnant or beacons of Jesus' grace and love for the world to take notice of. Jesus also said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. So as exiles in this broken world, we're meant to be like that peace bringing non-anxious presence, differentiated from the ways of the culture, not as an escape from it or even just for strict religious reasons, but precisely so that we can present an alternative perspective and resolution in the midst of the chaos. Again, it's precisely because Daniel was able to remain cool and self-differentiated from the circumstance that he was able to then act in the face of injustice. And this is the call of the church as well. We're not just non-anxious, but in, our, but in that self-differentiation, we can then act. This is the call of the church. David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, who I know I've been quoting a lot lately in this series, uh, but it's just too good not to. Um, they write this, this, they say, when there, when there is confusion about key issues in our society, Christians ought to bring clarity to a situation and then compel others to act. The enemy loves a confused church and society. He likes nothing better than to keep us feeling overwhelmed by the magnitude of the problems, cowering in our corners, ineffective and despondent. So, they're saying when we're able to keep a sound mind and refuse to give in to the confusion or emotion of the culture or circumstance, we're then able to bring clarity, justice, and act and compel others to act for the good of the situation according to our calling and, and the gifts God's given us to use, of course. But if we're confused as a church, if, if we're overwhelmed by the magnitude of the problems, if we're cowering in our corners, if we're, if we're running in fear, we won't be able to act. We won't be able to stand in the gap like Daniel did. We, don't, we won't be able to be agents of renewal and healing and peace. But if we are able to keep a sound mind, if we refuse to give in to the confusion then we will be able to bring clarity, justice, and act for the good of the situation, for the good of the world. Chuck Colson refers to this as being agents of God's common grace. 
It's kind of a long quote, but he writes, Evangelism and cultural renewal are both divinely ordained duties. God exercises his sovereignty in two ways, through saving grace and common grace. And we are all familiar with saving grace. It is the means by which God's power calls people who are dead in their trespasses and sins to new life in Christ. As God's servants, we may at times be agents of his saving grace, evangelizing and bringing people to Christ. But few of us really understand common grace, which is the means by which God's power sustains creation, holding back the sin and evil that result from the fall, and that would otherwise overwhelm his creation like a great flood. As agents of God's common grace, we are called to help sustain and renew his creation, to uphold the created institutions of family and society, to pursue science and scholarship to create works of art and beauty and to heal and help those suffering from the results of the fall. So that's common grace. It's being agents of renewal and healing. And for Daniel, God gave him the ability to dream and interpret dreams in order to bring renewal and change into a confusing and an unjust situation. But remember, that's his story, not ours. That's his story. But, it, but in the same way, God's given each of you gifts and opportunities and passions so you can be agents of common grace within the world as well. So ask yourselves, what situations has God placed you in to be that non-anxious presence within your family, at work, within the church? What areas of social justice or what issues in our culture are you passionate about? And how can you use the gifts God has given you to act as agents of renewal and beacons of hope? Pray about that. Pray about those things. But ultimately, it's the church as a whole which is called to be a city on a hill. To be a remnant of holiness and truth and peace, to bring that non-anxious presence, to be that agent of common grace in the midst of a chaotic and sinful world. The problem, though, which Edwin Friedman points out as well, is that anxiety is systemic, and unfortunately, we're often sucked into the system more often than not. Or rather, an easier way of explaining it is that anxiety, fear, and confusion are contagious, and too often we catch the bug. For example, about a year ago when I was on my way home from vacation, we were sitting in the food court of the Orlando airport, and all of a sudden a crowd of people started stampeding down the hall. And before I could even ask, what's going on? Everybody in the food court started screaming and running as well. Our family was told by someone working there to get under the table, and so we did. And this, this all happened in a matter of seconds. We didn't even know what was going on, but we were instantly terrified for our kids' lives and for our own lives. And it turns out, Some guy was getting arrested at the security gate nearby, and someone yelled, Gun! Thinking they had seen him reach for one while he was being arrested. And then immediately, like a domino effect, the whole airport freaked out. One person, one person cried out in fear. 
and thousands reacted to that fear without question, even ditching their belongings. And they didn't even know what they were running from. This is a result of systemic anxiety. This is the world we live in. We're all on edge, expecting and waiting for our cue to freak out or for the next social injustice to trigger us into a rage. And when we see it or when we see someone else doing it, we all join in and we follow along like lemmings. And in the same way for the churches, as we're living in this highly tense, busy, judgmental, materialistic, and anxiety-filled culture, it's easy to get sucked in. In fact, I'd say it's incredibly hard not to. It's like trying to keep our heads above the water in the middle of a current. Eventually, we're going to get sucked under. Eventually, we'll lose our cool and and be swept away with the crowd and its chaos. That's happened to all of us. But when that happens, Jesus says, we become like salt that's lost its saltiness, ineffective, good for nothing but being trampled on. Pastor Mark Sayers again writes, I've tried to live as a non-anxious presence a self-differentiated leader in the face of criticism, undermining, and backlash. Despite all of my attempts at discipline, perseverance, humility, and courage, I have learned that I cannot be a non-anxious agent of renewal in my own strength. I believe that we can only be healing presences in systems without turning toxic ourselves when we first become living temples of His presence. And that's the key to all of this. It's less about our presence and more about God's presence being revealed through and in us. If we take a look at Daniel and ask, how is he able to keep his cool? Well, he shows us the answer to that. He shows us the answer to that pretty quickly as he, as he calls his friends together to pray and seek God's will and presence in the midst of the situation. He's able to be that non-anxious presence because he's learned to submit, trust, and partner with what God is doing. And he seems to have the faith to believe that God's placed him there as an exile in Babylon for that reason. Maybe he's even thinking of of the story of Joseph and how God used him to interpret the dreams of the king of Egypt. But either way, he's he's non-anxious because he's got his eyes set on God. Because he's looking to God. Because he trusts in God. As we sing sometimes in worship, A song by John Foreman. Why should I worry? Why should I freak out? God knows what I need. That's pretty much Daniel's motto here. 
He's leaning on the presence of God in the midst of the chaos, which he reminds everyone over and over throughout the story as he looks to God in prayer, as he seeks God in prayer, as he gives him all the credit and then worships him in song according to who God is and what he's done by helping him interpret the dream and and, and according to what God does and what he's going to do. Even later in the story, which, which we're going to get to next time, Daniel confesses to King Nebuchadnezzar that it's not his ability It's not Daniel's ability, but God alone who can reveal the dream and its interpretation. And so, like Daniel, if we're to be a non-anxious presence, an agent of renewal, if we're going to act without fear and, and a sound mind in the face of injustice in tense moments, it needs to be in the strength of God. Or more importantly, we need to be conduits of his presence and light. So God needs to be our focus. Without the presence of God, we'll be like Jesus' disciples in the boat in the middle of the storm. Freaking out like everyone else would be. Thinking we're going to die. Like them, we require... We require that peaceful demeanor, presence, and power of Jesus. Who wasn't worried at all, right? He's asleep in the boat. And they're all freaking out. And they're mad at Jesus. Don't you even care about us? But he was asleep because he wasn't worried. Because he was that non-anxious presence. So we need to look to and rely on him in faith. To look to Jesus to not only calm the storms for us, but for his spirit to also keep us from giving in to fear and anxiety ourselves. And Jesus says, peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Right? We need his peace beyond understanding. And in addition to that, we need to learn to trust in the plan and will of God. That he's at work no matter what the circumstance is. That he's placed us as exiles in the middle of all this for a reason. Even if we don't fully get it ourselves. That's why Paul instructs us in Philippians 4, 6-7 when he says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's it's not that we don't feel anxiety or stress or fear at times. We will, especially in those tense moments. And it's not even that we're supposed to ignore or, or, or suppress or hide it deep down. You know, like, like Timothy Keller, when he, when he quoted Frozen, the Frozen movie, conceal, don't feel. It's not, it's not like we're supposed to do that. But rather, we, we have someone in whom we can surrender our, our anxiety and our troubles to. And someone who can give us peace beyond understanding and guard our heart through whatever we're facing. But I want to point out as well that this prayer to to surrender our anxiety to God isn't just for our own 
good or, or merely for our own personal anxiety issues. This is so that as the body of Christ, as the church with our hearts and minds centered on the presence and peace of God, we can then become set apart from the systemic anxiety and confusion of the world and therefore we can be conduits of his non-anxious presence and then become effective and powerful agents of his common grace and renewal in the world. As it says in 2 Timothy 1.7, concerning being in, the, being in the middle of suffering and persecution, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Again, if we're just as anxious or, or fearful or overwhelmed as the world, we'll be ineffective. But like Daniel, with our faith and hope centered on God, who does dwell with his people as exiles and temples of his Holy Spirit. We can be set apart from the sin and chaos of the world as beacons of his presence, of his grace, hope, truth, justice, and peace. Through Christ we can be salt and light, a city on a hill. We're going to respond to that in a moment with communion. But first I want to end with reading 2 Timothy 1, 7-10. Which says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Relying on the power of God. As he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, right? A holy calling to be a city on a hill, salt and light. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel.